It's infected everything. Look at this Inflation Reduction Act. They stood there with a straight face and lied about that. The vice president, I don't know what you're talking about. The border is secure. They lied about that. Their entire ethos right now is built on staring into a camera and thinking that you, the American people, are dumber than a box of hammers. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And it's going to be a bumpy ride. This is Joe Arnold, your roundtable host of Flyover Country, joined by Kevin Kraut, Jared Crawford, Sean Southern, and the aforementioned Scott Jennings. Joining us, I believe, from I don't know points unknown. Are you in? Are you in New York or DC, Scott? Joe, Joe, where are you, Joe? <laughs> Joe, are you here today? Where's Joe? Oh, there he is. He's in Paducah. Welcome. I get it. Oh, you're comparing <laughs> me to Joe Biden. Oh my gosh, what a Bill, terrible. We're, we're gonna hear. We're gonna hear from Joe, Sean, <laughs> Kevin. We're gonna Kevin. Hear- we're going to hear from Joe Biden coming up from the president. But I want to talk about a few things. I want to talk about, first of all, I always want to get an update from everybody here as far as midterms. We're, I mean, we're almost to the end of uh, September here. This is almost the home stretch and where we count what the latest polls are saying about uh, about those midterms. I want to talk about um, about the, F, the, the, the incident this past week that uh, Scott's referring to with the president. And your what's the press secretary's name again, Scott? Corrine Jean Pierre, yes, who who made it a thousand times worse. We we'll talk I, about that. Unbelievable. We'll talk about it momentarily. I want to start though because this podcast originates in Louisville, Kentucky, mm. where this past week, uh, and, and how many people are on this podcast are related to have some link to the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. Oh, I do, and Sean does, and Kevin does. Jared, uh, we have a restraining order against Jared. He's not allowed <laughs> in. So Joe, I'm you've been there. People here who did not come through the McConnell Center, which is a nonpartisan leadership uh, institution at the University of Louisville that uh, basically that, that, that cultivates and supports young leaders from Kentucky and from all political stripes. It's really a, it's it's an amazing institution there at U of L. And Gary Gregg is the longtime um, uh, executive director of, of that there. There's, a listener. Uh, many, and, and I'm glad to hear that. Fellow I'm podcaster. Fan of Gary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. And anyway, but they, they uh, I mean, over the years uh, have brought in, you know, some of the top political names in the country, including Joe Biden, including uh, George W. Bush, and John McCain and Hillary Clinton and Ted Kennedy and Robert Byrd. And this is off the top of my head. But uh, this past week. They heard from a rather rather uh, controversial figure of this past year in the U.S. Senate. From let's hear from her right now. Let's, let's start the show here with Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona at the McConnell Center at U of L. But despite our apparent differences, Senator McConnell and I have forged a friendship, one that is rooted in our commonalities, including our pragmatic approach to legislating our respect for the Senate as an institution, our love for our home states, and a dogged determination on behalf of our constituents. 
You know, in today's partisan Washington, it might shock some that a Democratic senator would consider the Republican leader of the Senate her friend. But back home in Arizona, we don't view life through a partisan lens. Arizonans understand that while we may not agree on every issue, we do share the same values. Now, wouldn't you think in almost every conversation you hear on on television and, and political shows about there needs to be more bipartisanship, there needs to be more civility in politics, there needs to be more coming to the center, there needs to be more understanding. You would think that this would be embraced by everyone across the country saying, oh my gosh, thank goodness we finally have a voice of reason, McConnell and Cinema coming together and showing some commonality. But Kevin, I think you were there at the, at the speech. Let me start yeah. with you. What what was it like, and how was it re- how was it received? So the room was obviously a big fan of hers. Uh, not only <laughs> just because she spoke to the filibuster, not just protecting the filibuster as it exists. She actually wanted to expand the filibuster. Less applause for that line, but she definitely got some. There was some applause. There there was some heartfelt applause for expanding the filibuster. Um, yeah, it, it was a room that was ready to hear that message because I think we were. The whole, as you set it up, Joe, the whole idea of the McConnell Center is to kind of push away the partisan passions of the moment and get to something bigger and, I'd argue, more important. She also poo-pooed the House of Representatives a lot. And, you know, that that worked the crowd up a fair fair deal. So, Scott, how was this received across the national media? Oh, with all the uh, uh, sort of a measured reaction and uh, and a reasonable takes. I mean, it, it was received terribly. You had the liberal uh, punditry, the punditocracy having a complete and total meltdown. Uh, you had Democrats having a meltdown. You had the Twitterverse having a meltdown. The Why? idea... The idea... Because... Because that, that, is the, that is the status of American political discourse. You have a Democrat speaking in friendly terms about a Republican instead of, I mean, what, what, what do they want Kirsten Sinema to do? They want to say Mitch McConnell should be taken out to the town square and shot. I mean, that's what they want her to say because that's what they think. I mean, to, to them, it is, it should not be allowed to have a relationship with someone across the aisle. It should not, the people across the aisle shouldn't even be allowed to exist. I mean, that, that, that is, that's the prevailing attitude. And so you saw this on display. And of course the hatred for cinema throughout the year is that she won't give in to the mob. You know, they wanted her to give in on the filibuster. They want her to give in all the time and just go along with the mob. And you know, she has her own ideas. And they don't think a female United States senator who was elected in her own right and on her own steam should be able to think for herself. I mean, that's ultimately what's going on on the left is that this independent leader, female leader, should not be allowed to have a mind of her own. That's what's happening. I want to hear from Sean here, but first, Jared, let's hear from Mitch McConnell and his comments about Senator Cinema. I've only known Kirsten for uh, four years, but she is in my view, and I've told her this before, the most effective first-term senator I've seen in my time in the Senate. She is today what we have too few of in the Democratic Party, a genuine moderate and a deal-maker. 
Well, I mean, it, it was high praise from Senator McConnell, of course. The one thing that he really does respect is people who are able to put aside ideological differences and, and make a deal. And uh, as he said in his, his uh, introduction to her there, but also uh, later on in his introduction, that she was, quote, right in the middle of every single deep bipartisan deal that had happened uh, this this Congress. And so I think that uh, many people here in Louisville and the community were excited about the fact that she came here uh, to hear from such a principled speaker. Uh, she was uh, very principled in her remarks, and uh, I think that that's one of the reasons that people are attracted to her. And fearless, too, because th- there were a number of times where she said, I'm happy to talk about where I am. I'm, I go all over Arizona, you know, and she, she's going to be up for her election again soon. And she said, I'm going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing. I think that this is the way not only to run the country, but I think it's actually good because she has this long list of accomplishments that pretty much just came in the last two years. Well, what is what is remarkable about her is um, two things. One, um, most most Democrats actually don't have the wherewithal to stand up to the mob that runs their party. I mean, that, that's just the truth. Most of them would rather not deal with it. But all since she came to the con, uh, to the Senate, her willingness to defend the institution, you know, take the partisan issues out of it. The, the you know, it's just the institutional defense that's been required and and preserving the Senate as the Senate and not just turning it into another madhouse like the United States House of Representatives. <laughs> that's that's what has enraged her party so much and her willingness to stand up to these mobs. It, it's really remarkable. And I think that's what McConnell respects about her. Certainly they've, they've come to some agreement on some bipartisan deals and certainly they have voted different ways on other things. But I think where McConnell really responds to her and respects her is just the defense of the institution. And, and I think there's a lot of respect there for someone who's willing to stand up to a political party that is completely and totally overrun by overtaken by and led by crazy mobs. It's a mob every day. What is the mob du jour? And they expect all the Democrats to fall in line. And sometimes she doesn't. And it's, they're enraged when people have a mind of their own. So, you know, Kirsten Cinema doesn't vote the way I'd like her to most of the time, but God bless anybody who's willing to stand up to the mob in this day and age. God bless them. Is there any kind of um, reflection or understanding that her blocking Build Back Better and, and of course, along with Joe Manchin as well there, ended up being, when, when you look at the the 40-year the highest inflation inflation situation right now and everything else happening in the in the in the country economic wise that you know that her standing up for and 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 blocking that from going forward is actually a good thing well she didn't block it forever i mean remember and and kevin you comment on this i mean she she ultimately folded on the reconciliation bill as did joe as did joe manchin which by the way we need to spend at least like 90 seconds good solid 90 seconds of joe manchin being absolutely having his pants pulled down by humiliated left right and center well we'll get to that in a minute but you know she ultimately folded on all that and i actually think if there's if there's a you know i think a legitimate criticism of cinema is after holding out all the, the time that she did on it she got very little for arizona i mean she could have gotten anything she wanted. She could have gotten anything, and she really, she really delivered that much for her. So I, so I, I think I, I think she actually didn't get get enough for for folding eventually. Um, but 
you know, she did hold out for a long time. She obviously cares about the economic health of the country, whereas, you know, or at least she has some some pangs of conscience about it when most of the people in her party could, could give a rip about inflation or anything else. So, again, after the shooting at the congressional baseball game or uh, any other kind of acrimony that we've had in the in the country, and we talked about this need for this bipartisanship and some kind of, you know, commonality, you would think some of the folks in the national media would embrace this. I want to play one soundbite for you from Mehdi Hassan of MSNBC. This is, I think, characteristic of how Senator Sinema's comments at the McConnell Center were received on Monday. Kirsten Cinema, who doesn't like holding town halls in our own state of Arizona, today went to Mitch McConnell's state of Kentucky to address the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. The woman who has become renowned for and resented for her undying support for the Senate filibuster, the biggest block on progress in this country, had this to say to her conservative audience. The best thing you can do for your child is to not give them everything they want, right? And that's important to the United States Senate as well. We shouldn't get everything we want in the moment. So not only am I committed to the 60-vote threshold, I have an incredibly unpopular view. I actually think we should restore the 60-vote threshold for the areas in which it has been eliminated already. We should restore it. Yeah, not everyone likes that. Yeah, even tepid pause, even in that very, First very off, as version. my colleague Chris Hayes pointed out, we the voters are not children, and you, Senator Cinema, are not the grown-up. If anything, it's the other way around. But the bigger issue is, saying that laws can't pass with 51 votes, they have to have 60? And saying that Mitch McConnell's event, a man who has done more to guarantee minority rule in this country than anyone else, is just fundamentally anti-democratic. So you have fun, Kirsten Cinema. You be bipartisan and enigmatic and defiant. Meanwhile, democracy itself is at death's door in Arizona and across these United States. Your corporate donors, Senator, may be kind to you, but history won't be. The so, Senate is just anti-democratic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to update the log, uh, uh, Senator Cinema speaking in Louisville, Kentucky, is what is going to destroy democracy. So just if we're like putting the list here it's probably like uh that and then i don't know maybe like trump and then fox news but just so we know her speaking at an event in louisville let's just all update our logs that's the biggest threat to democracy you, you know what i shouldn't have been i was gonna say scott i shouldn't have been surprised but still this this amount of head exploding across the country it's, it's, it's still surprising to me First of all, Mehdi Hassan is a ridiculous clown, and, <laughs> yeah. and and I've been on TV with him before, and yeah, he's. I mean, he he is he is a professional moron. I mean, that's what he gets paid to be a complete a radical bloke. <laughs> moron. And 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 so let's just put that. In. But but you know what I took away from his comments? You know, he. I mean, she she was she was obviously creating a metaphor there with the show, but then he turns around and says she's she is a child. And I don't know. I, I think if, if the if the shoes were on other feet here and a conservative commentator were treating a female leader the way Mehdi was treating Kirsten Cinema, But that's the thing that on the left, uh, they complain about and, and a sort of in, in a constant state of being offended, except when someone makes them mad. And then it's, oh, Kirsten Cinema, she's she's a child. 
Or uh, uh, there were some other uh, liberal commentators this week that went on full homophobic rant against uh, on I think it was on MSNBC. Let me pull it, Jared, but but against Lindsey Graham. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and so uh, what I what I found interesting about that rant and, and what I think is common among the, the sort of the outrage on the left is their willingness to immediately start to do all the things in terms of insults and 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 uh, misogyny, homophobia that they they are in constant state of, uh, of, of accusation against the right on. And I think Medi did it uh, and others did it and, and sort of treating her poorly. I, I really do think it's it's misogyny. I mean, I don't know what she would call it. These guys give away the game as soon as they open their mouths. And, you know, when it's a Republican like Senator Susan Collins, who's frequently a, a moderate vote, when she switches parties and votes with the other side, she's hailed as a champion. It's bipartisanship at its best and everybody's happy. But when a Democrat breaks away and joins the Republicans, it's a threat in the death of democracy. These, these guys their bias is on full display and then it gets even worse and uglier as you just laid out, Scott. I know this, is, uh, this is, I know, I know this is a little bit off the beaten path, uh, but I just, just to go back to, to the thing I, I referenced on Friday's Stephanie rule show, she was guest hosting on the 11th hour, or maybe she's a regular host on MSNBC. She had a panel that had on Nancy Giles, uh, Ron and Sana, a columnist named Liz Plank and a comic and a podcaster named Judy gold. And at the end of the show, I'm reading this off of Mediaite, uh, Rule brought up Graham and the abortion legislation. And uh, um, they were, you know, discussing it. And then um, this this person, Gold, that was on the show, Judy Gold, quote, he's never seen a vagina. He's never seen a naked woman. And then the panel is laughing, including Stephanie Rule, who they market as a journalist. Um and then there was some crosstalk, and and then it, it, it was, uh, you know, honestly, I just I I think I think these people have have a vast amount of hate in their hearts, uh, and uh, and it and it sometimes comes out, and you know they call out conservatives when conservatives say stupid things, but they seem to be able to get away with this kind of talk in our our mass media, and I think it. I don't know. I think it's pretty bad. And then they explain away when a mob chases a senator into a bathroom yeah. while she's using it just because, well, yeah. what they want is right. You know, I, I remember it was days that Senator Schumer wouldn't condemn the people, you know, mobbing his members and just and letting it go a, because it's what he wanted. It's like this. It's this corrosive view that that if, if you think your cause is right and moral and just or whatever, then anything is justified. Chasing someone into a bathroom, making off color, crass, misogynistic, homophobic remarks like literally anything, any tactic or any statement is justified because I'm right. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm right, then you must be evil. It's not that we disagree or that we're just even right and wrong. It's I'm right and you're evil. Therefore, I can say anything. I can do anything to you. And that's that's what they do to cinema. It's crazy. I mean, it's it's really crazy. I want to talk about the uh, midterms and looking ahead, but we're going to segue out of cinema into that by asking you this question. I'll ask Sean. McConnell's comments complimenting cinema for being the most effective freshman senator from the first four years as he's ever seen in his, what, 30 years in the Senate. Does that hurt her? 
Yeah, back home in Arizona, and then the, the primary is, is is McConnell actually kind of a poison pill for Kristen Kristen Cinema in, in her next uh, race. I mean, I guess it could in some ways, but in other ways, if you actually believe what Senator Cinema said, is that you know people want an effective senator in Arizona. They actually want someone who can deliver and be in the room where it happens, so to say. And uh, so she's she's going to be able to, as a result of her her work to go home and say, this is what I've done. Now, I still think that, you know, the way that Arizona is trending, she may have a little difficulty doing that, but we'll see what happens. And before I forget, before we get to the midterm, Scott, you wanted to mention uh, and, and, and talk about the, the beatdown of Joe Manchin this past week. Oh, my gosh. Joe Manchin. Where do we even start? Well, first of all, um, his, his selling out West Virginia on the reconciliation bill. I mean, I, I I can't even say the title of the bill out loud. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> I'll just, I'm just going to keep calling it the reconciliation bill. But his selling out on that and voting on with the Biden-Schumer agenda plummeted him, plummeted him to depths he's never seen in West Virginia. I mean, his polling over there, uh, according to people I've spoken to and uh, 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 have seen some surveys, um, just fell off the table, both – in West Virginia and nationally. So so just making that deal totally gutted him in his own home state. But to get that deal, he made a claim at the time that he had cut a deal with Chuck Schumer on permitting and he was going to build a pipeline and he had gotten all this stuff for West Virginia. So then they go into they go into the the continuing resolution vote this week, Kevin. Uh, I know you lived through a few of those in the Senate. Oh yeah. Oh, and 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 he couldn't even get his own party and Chuck Schumer to fulfill this deal that they, they, you know, made with him in order to do the reconciliation deal, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks ago and he had to pull it out of the CR. He was totally pantsed by Chuck Schumer and the progressives in the Democrat party. Now I think the Republicans played hardball here and they, they wouldn't back him. And he, and he went and, you know, begged Republicans for their votes. It's not the Republican party's job to fulfill the terms of a deal that Chuck Schumer made with Joe Manchin. That's Chuck Schumer's job. And it's Joe Manchin's job. And it's also his job to be, you know, uh, not totally naive in believing that Chuck Schumer could make the progressives in the Democratic Party do anything for a senator from West Virginia that they've grown to hate. So I think Joe Manchin got exactly what he deserved. By the way, his permitting bill is stupid. It does nothing. It's complete total... Just window dressing. Shelly Moore Capito has a real bill in West Virginia uh, that would actually do some good for energy projects in this country. That's the one they ought to pass. I think Joe Manchin got exactly what he deserved. I think his poll numbers are getting exactly what they deserve. And this, I hope he learned a valuable lesson here and he did about. It. I mean, terrible. And he did it in the slimiest way possible. Like he kept saying his bill was coming out and he was going to work on it. But then he like dropped it the morning that they were supposed to vote on it before the government shut down. Uh, Shelley Moore Capito's bill had been out for like two weeks. Every Republican was already supporting it. Joe Manchin thought he could just slide his bill into a CR and everybody would be okay with it. But yeah, he he got what was coming to him. um, And he, he asked senator schumer to take his bill off of uh the cr you know because he he didn't want to cause the strife yeah but he it he, was great he to is, watch. Uh, he is he is getting all the scorn uh from his home state that, that he deserves to get and and, uh, and I, if i were republicans i mean i know they try to deal with him and you know and he's been part of the the few people in the senate that didn't want to totally blow up the institution but 
I tell you what, he, he made his bed and he gave away all his leverage on the reconciliation bill. You know, that was his main leverage point was holding up that vote, uh, you know, supposedly to do something for the people of his own home state. And he got them nothing. He got them nothing. So Joe Manchin, go to the week as far as I'm concerned. And not, and not greatest and not, of all time. Actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, not the acronym. Hey, let's get right to the polls here, guys. Uh, there's a, a variety of polls out, ABC News, Washington Post poll out there as far as uh, showing Republicans ahead in some key swing districts out there and talking about house races. And the question, of course, is the Senate as well. Scott, give us a rundown of the poll numbers lately. We'll get in a minute here to the Joe Biden's approval, which really has not rebounded at all. You've been talking the last few weeks about many Democrats kind of coming home and, and that's kind of solidifying or kind of evening out some things from before. But where do we stand now? Well, let's, let's talk about Joe Biden first. Um, I actually think, um, things have settled out for Joe Biden. I, I do believe over the summer you did see a few partisan Democrats and, and, and Democrat leaners just return back to the Democratic Party. They went back to their corners. But if you look at some of the polling that's come out uh, over the last few days, I mean, the ABC News Washington Post poll that came out this past weekend, Joe Biden sitting at 39. If you look at the uh, uh, the Grinnell Selzer, uh, Ann Selzer poll, uh, she's really good uh, nationally. He's sitting at 40. You look at the Trafalgar uh, group poll that came out uh, yesterday, you know, nationally sitting at 40. Reuters Ipsos uh, sitting at 41. In real clears average, Biden currently sits at 42.6 versus a disapprove of 53.3. That's nearly an 11-point spread to the bad. So the president is really, really in rough shape. I know there's been a lot of happy talk about, you know, his rebounding. It just, It's just not real. It's just not real. He is in really, really rough shape as the problems of the country continue to persist. So that's number one. The other thing uh, that we should talk about is the national generic ballot, the national. So so when they do a survey, who do you intend to vote for, Republican or Democrat? The national generic ballot has now come back to the Republicans in the real clear average. Republicans sit at 46.1 versus Democrats 45.1. There have been all this happy talk about how Democrats had taken the lead on the national generic ballot. But in the in the polling averages, which is the correct way to look at all this, Republicans are actually slightly ahead. And in, in a, a one-point lead for Republicans or a statistical tie, that's more than enough for Republicans to, at a minimum, uh, retake the House uh, without much uh, trouble at all. And the final thing is some of the notes, uh, and, I'll, and I'll let you guys comment uh, after this, some of the notes uh, from the Washington Post-ABC News poll this last weekend that I just thought were fascinating – were uh, around Joe Biden. His approval, as I mentioned, was back down to 39. Over half the Democrats they surveyed said they wanted someone else for 2024. Over half the people who responded, 52%, I think, said they thought Donald Trump should be charged with a crime. Now, now this is important. Over half the country thought Joe Biden, I'm sorry, thought Donald Trump should be charged with a crime. In the head-to-head matchup, Trump versus Biden, Trump led Biden by two points, 48 to 46, among registered voters. Think about that. Over half the country thinks Donald Trump should be <laughs> indicted, and he's still meeting Joe Biden in a hypothetical matchup. If you want to know, if you want to, like, boil down at the next time you talk to your friends and relatives about how politics is going in this country, how— <laughs> How, what is the barometer of Joe Biden's presidency right now? Over half of Americans want to see Donald Trump thrown in the clink, 
and he's Joe Biden is still losing to Donald Trump. It's it was incredible. And I I think the Washington Post and ABC kind of buried this a little bit like they were embarrassed. That that's what their <laughs> poll came up with. But that was to me, guys, the main takeaway. Just nuts. Crazy. Scott, I want to ask you the question. Uh, the last few years, these polls have frequently just been way far off and totally undercounting where Republicans are. There's uh, been a, num- uh, a lot of traffic uh, among commentators on the right about the difference between registered voter polls and likely voter polls that, you know, these polling firms are using registered voter polls because it makes Democrats look better. What what? How much confidence do you place in where these polls are actually coming out? I mean, obviously you're using them. I, are, are you trusting them? Uh, could you just speak to that for a second? I mean, look, I think in the Senate, it's a great conversation to have because, you know, it's easy to get lost in all these polls and and get wrapped up in it. And and it's really in the absence of anything else to talk about. Right. These campaigns are going on and they're running their ads. And and so, you know, we all get wrapped up in the polls. Um, The Senate polling, I think, as everyone on this podcast knows, really, since going back to like 2014, has been absolute garbage. I mean, I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember that in October (laughs) of 2014, the Courier Journal newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky, ran a survey, and Joe Arnold, I think your old TV station was in on it too, WHAS TV, had a survey in October showing Mitch McConnell losing to Allison Grimes. He ended up winning by like 15 points. I, you know, in 2020 in Kentucky, you know, McConnell with a single-digit lead over McGrath in the surveys, he ends up winning by 20 points. Uh, you had surveys all over this country, 14, 16, 18, 20 they just could not get the Senate races correct. They just couldn't get it right. And obviously there were well-known polling problems in 16. There were big problems in 20, overestimating uh, Democrats and Biden, underestimating Trump. So, look, I, I think these things have mostly had a bias to Democrats, not in every state, but in most states with key Senate races, the polls have historically had a D bias, not a Republican bias. So if you believe that, which I do, then it's easy to sort of think, well, maybe they do again. You can't hang your hat on it. Uh, and I, and I try to look at the averages as much as possible, but it's hard to ignore Kevin, uh, just the bias in these surveys. It's been going on year after year after year. So even if it's a a D plus three race or something, Republicans shouldn't lose heart. They should keep fighting for the red wave. Well, I think the thing about polls is this, it, it depends on who turns out and did you poll some of the people that turned out that you didn't expect. I mean, that, that's ultimately the issue here. It's going to be a really high turnout election, really high. And I, you know, I mean, are these polls picking up everybody that's going to turn out? And I would say to either party. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who vote in this in this midterm who have no demonstrable history of voting in midterms and have little demonstrable history of voting at all. I believe that. I believe turnout is going to be really high. And so um, and then you throw the national generic on it, tied for Republicans. You throw the clustering of Democrat votes around urban areas. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to believe that they're not picking up what the Republicans could do. Now, that having been said, you know, my thoughts on this are also uh, uh, tempered by the fact that some of the Republican candidates around the country are just not very good candidates, not running very good campaigns. They're being drastically outspent candidate to candidate. And and so. I could easily see how they they put an anvil on their own heads, and that the polling uh, isn't going to permit them to to uh, to rise to the to the extent that they should. But you just look at the the factors: Biden at forty two, inflation raging, uh, uh, you know, the border in crisis, national crime wave. I mean, true quality of life stuff. 
I just don't think Democrats have made the case to ignore all that. I really don't. I, and and I'm, I'm someone who, had, who fully admits that the abortion issue did, did energize some of the Democratic electorate. But the bucket of people who care about the economy is bigger than the bucket of people who care about abortion issue to issue is my view. You know, the, uh, the burns I get from you guys on this podcast, which I enjoy so much are, uh, are, are epic, but nothing was as, was as bad as walking into Mitch McConnell's Senate office in Washington, DC in January of 2015 to go and interview him for his first day as majority leader. And the first thing he says to me is Joe, that poll was just embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So yeah, yeah. I was like, "Yes, you're right, sir." And then we moved on. <laughs> um, but but Scott, to your point about trying to the, the polls are basically you know t- two different barometers. You're trying to catch one. One is the overall mood or of the electorate or of the of the people overall. The other one is trying to how do you predict who's going to show up. And I guess that's the that's the magic of you know of all this here is is turning as who's the most motivated, and then my second question. Well, that's 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 the first one for you. I have a second. I have a follow up. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you, you know, if you if you want to poll it this way, you know, you can look at the voter file and you can get an idea of of whether a person participates. I mean, that's the number one thing. But that doesn't pick up people, as I mentioned, who may have a newfound interest in an election for one reason or another. And so, um, you know, you can ask people, or do you intend to vote? How enthusiastic are you? I mean, I mean, there's ways to model it, but it's not easy. And this, and this has been a problem with pollsters in the Trump era. There's just a lot of, of sort of new Republicans and Trump centric voters who just, they're just not able to pick them up. Either they're not answering or they can't get them to, 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 you know, model out correctly. And so it, it's, it, the polling industry has not yet figured that part out. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I don't know if they fixed it yet or not. So my second question, well, actually, uh, let, me, let me, let me say one other thing. I, I, I don't want to totally belabor this, but, but if you look at 2020, you know, United States presidential election, the polling leader was Joe Biden. He had about an eight point lead in the polls nationally. He ended up winning by four. In Wisconsin, in 2020, they predicted Biden would win by 10 points. He won by less than a point. In Michigan, they thought he would win by eight points. He he won by three. In Nevada, six points predicted, two-point win. Pennsylvania, five points predicted, one-point win. Arizona, three points predicted, less than one. Florida, people forget. Joe Biden led the polls in Florida in 2020 by two points on Election Day. Trump wins the state by three. North Carolina, Joe Biden led by two points. Trump won the state by a point. Uh, In Ohio, uh, it was basically tied. Trump led in the polling in Ohio by less than a point. He won by eight. In Iowa, Trump led by a point. He won by eight. In Texas, Trump led by two, and he won by six points. And so in 2020, the polls just badly missed. Now, Joe Biden won the election, obviously. We know that. But the polls just badly missed Republican vote share and overestimated what Biden was going to do. And I remember at the time, guys talking about, you know, um, why that is. And, you know, are Democrats more likely to just answer surveys? And are they more excited to tell people who they're going to vote for? I, I, th- I actually think there's that. I think that's I think that's part of it. And so I don't know. I, I, I just I remember what happened in 16. I remember what happened in 20. I remember what happened in 14. I, I just I, what what reasons do we have to believe that this couldn't be happening again? 
I'll, I'll add to Scott. We uh, we've talked a lot about how much Democrats have spent on abortion and advertising. The second uh, biggest topic for them has been character, which is really sort of Trump. But uh, we had a poll last week too that showed uh, the majority of Americans are more concerned about the socialist left than the MAGA right. And so I don't even know that their top two issues, sort of scaring people into this ultra MAGA wave of whatever. And then abortion, those two issues, which we know are not typically issues that get people to go vote, are going to be as energizing as they think. I, I think to your point, Scott, and uh, somebody said this to you on CNN this week, we saw a surge in women registering to vote. That was, come election day, that's going to be many months ago. Are they still going to be energized to actually get up on that Tuesday morning and go vote for an issue that we typically don't see as energizing, whereas the economy, jobs, taxes, schools, uh, quality of life type stuff are typically those top five issues we know Republicans are doing better in. So I, the, the two issues that they're banking on, I, I don't know that they're going to be as energizing as Democrats think they are. To, to your point, there was a story um, a few days ago in Axios uh, that the headline was search interest in abortion falls as the border rises. Americans Google searches and story interactions around crime and immigration are eclipsing abortion and the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, according to Axios midterms dashboard powered by Google trends. So to your, to, to your question, has abortion been enough to sustain this democratic energy? According to what people are looking, what information people are looking for on the Internet, the answer is no. And so, you know, that's not a poll, but it does give you an idea of like what's driving, you know, conversations for voters. Let me go. Let me go back to the to the polling again. Nate Cohn at The New York Times. I would encourage everyone to read Nate's story about the polling misses in 2020 and and how all that went down. He published it on September the 12th. It was a few days ago. Democrats lost their minds. But he talks about the polling bias in favor of Democrats in 2020. Uh, but there was a there was a there was a paragraph um, in his a couple of paragraphs in this story. The warning sign is flashing again. Democratic Senate candidates are outrunning expectations in the same places where the polls overestimated Mr. Biden in 2020 and Mrs. Clinton in 2016. So, you know, this is one of the main data journalists and polling guys. And, and by the way, I think extremely talented Cohen at the New York Times um, warning Democrats that the same thing may be happening again. And then he says this. If the polls are wrong yet again, it will not be hard to explain. Most pollsters haven't made significant method methodological changes since the last election. The major polling community postmortem declared that it was, quote, impossible to definitively ascertain what went wrong in the 2020 election. So he's saying the polls were badly wrong, badly overestimated Democrats, and the pollsters who do the polls haven't changed a damn thing. And so I, I just I don't know. I see all this and I say, why wouldn't it? That doesn't mean it will happen again. But obviously, obviously, as he says, the warning signs are flashing. To what extent does the fact that especially in the last election and the pandemic uh, changes that happened then, to what extent does it make it even that much more difficult? It's one thing to try to pinpoint the way that voters are going to feel on Election Day. But when you have 
weeks and weeks of voting and the fluctuations that are existing within those weeks, it seems to me you have a lot of moving targets there trying to figure out where people, is it, when are they going to vote? Now I'm not saying how often they're going to vote, but when, when they're going to vote and, and, you know, and, and what is the big story or the motivating factor to get them to cast that ballot on that day? I mean, I, 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 first of all, I think a lot of states have kept uh, expanded access in place. So they're right. You know, uh, so there, there's more opportunities to vote. But just everything I've seen tells me that voter enthusiasm and interest in this election is mega high. Like we're, we're in line for our third straight really high turnout election. Um, and I think people I think people are angry. I think there are Democrats angry about abortion. I think there are Republicans and independents who are super angry about inflation. They're mad about immigration. I think cities and towns across this country are unsafe and people are tired of being scared to open their front door and stand on the porch or having, you know, their car carjacking occur when they drive through a town. I mean, I think people are angry. And, and I mean, look, look at the right track, wrong direction. About 20% of the nation thinks we're off on the right track and 80% thinks we're on the wrong track. That's a lot of people thinking this country is off on the wrong track. And when you think things are going wrong, you tend to get mad and do something about it. And the most direct way you can do it is by voting. So I, I really I think I think people are going to take advantage of all the ways that, that we're allowing people to vote these days. I think I think, look, I think Democrat enthusiasm, maybe it's waning. I don't know. But I know this. I know my own people. Republicans are chomping at the bit or champing. Champing. I don't know what it's, it's, it's still champing. champing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, whatever. And uh, this is uh, worse country. But, but they're but they but whatever they're doing to the bit, they're doing it. <laughs> and uh, and 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 they want to get a ballot. They want to get their hands on a ballot. I don't know, guys, what, what you all think, but I just think conservatives, the 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 absolute disdain they have for Joe Biden and this presidency, the decisions he's made, and the dishonesty, mm-hmm. yeah. and the condescension. That he shows people who disagree with him, I think, has conservative blood boiling. Yeah, we talked uh, last week about the um, Pennsylvania Senate race and the potential for crime to play a significant factor Mm -hmm. in that race, uh, mostly because of Fetterman's uh, history on this issue. Uh, But then this week, which if you're on Twitter, you saw... This video go mega viral of this Wawa is mega uh, viral like ultra mega, <laughs> just not as yeah not regular same. viral anymore. But of these you know dozens of kids ransacking this Wawa and being destructive, and this was of course in Philadelphia, right? And so I think these sorts of issues, if if we're overestimating uh, how much abortion is going to energize the left, I think they're underestimating how much something like crime that is it record-breaking rates that people are seeing gas stations and these like scott said they're, they're afraid to go downtown after dark they're afraid to stop at the gas station on the way home when it's dark those quality of life issues have never been worse and i think are going to be a much larger motivating factor than the media realizes or that the left realizes because you see videos like that and it scares you mm-hmm. well I, I think i think people who sort of watch the coverage of these elections unfold get a distorted view of what people are talking about because I mean, all we have is what we see, you know, in political coverage or in news coverage. And I think the, I think where the media really often misses is by overemphasizing things and underemphasizing others. 
if you if you would proportionately cover this election based on what the most people care about, you'd be seeing nothing but packages on TV about inflation, cost of living, immigration. I mean, but but, but yet 90 percent of the coverage revolves around abortion mm-hmm. and other issues that are farther down the list. Does it make them not important? But they're not as important as others, according to the polls. And yet the, the proportion of the conversation that they take up is enormous. And so when you see this night after night after night after night, I mean, you, you'd have to forgive the average person for not really having a, a clear view of what Jared just said, is that people actually really are pretty mad about, you know, quality of life and cost of living issues. It's just not getting the amount of attention that other lesser issues are getting. Let me ask a question. And I think you'll know the answer to it, Scott. Maybe you do, Sean, as well. But one thing to kind of get my expectations in line here, too, when we talk about the projections of the midterm, how many seats are actually in play? Because it seems sometimes there's, there's this thought that there's this, you know, there's all these, you know, the entire Congress is up. But really, as far as what's purple or what's actually could, could move back and forth, aren't, aren't, aren't we talking about a pretty narrow band, especially in the House? I think in the House, um, Kevin and I were actually just reviewing some of the major forecasts this week. Um, and um, Kevin, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think we had we had forecast the Republican number at about 212 and the Democrat number at about 192. That would leave 31 seats in the pure toss-up right. category. Now, I think there are lean Democrat and re- lean Republican seats You know that, that would pump that number up to some degree. Uh, but if you're just talking about pure toss-ups, show 31, maybe you tack on 10 on either side, maybe 50, 60, maybe 50 that are in the that are that are in play. I think the Senate map is is pretty small. I mean, I think Pennsylvania is in play, and um, that that's the the Democrats' best opportunity, and and then everything else is is underneath that. Um, and then I think on the Republican side, I think both Georgia and Nevada are definitely in play, and then everything else is underneath that. Uh, so I, I think the Senate map has shrunk to some degree, but I think I think the House map too is you know it's in the somewhere between thirty and fifty that that may be on the board. Let's get to the president, Joe Biden. <laughs> Who? Where? His rem- what? Joe? Joe? Is are he here? here? Kevin? All right. What Sean? are we talking about? By this point, everyone on the podcast has heard it. You've paused the, the podcast time. to go look it up if you don't know yet. <laughs> let's hear it. Let's hear it again, Jared. Let's hear it again. Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I think she was, she was going to be here to help make. Clear as day uh, if you want me to play it again. But yeah. So the president at, at this in this soundbite is, is speaking uh, at a White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health, and he he apparently appeared to be uh, giving props, singling out uh, Representative Jackie Walorski of Indiana, uh, who tragically was killed along with two of her staffers in a in a car accident in August. But let's hear it again here. So this is a a, a, a congresswoman who has who has died, and the, the president has already delivered condolences. But let's hear this again about him asking about where where she is. Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I think she she was going to be here to help make this a reality. He he's he's looking for her, Scott. So thankfully, Scott, after this apparent 
mix up and maybe he forgot that she had passed away. Thankfully, the White House press secretary was able to clear all this up, right? Oh, my gosh. I mean, look, I've seen some bad days at the White House <laughs> podium. I mean, certainly during the Trump years, there were some bad days. Biden's had some bad days. We had some bad days in the Bush years. I mean, you know, it happens. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything this bad, guys. Sean, I mean, you're a professional communicator. I mean, have you ever seen anybody absolute? I mean, what happened was this. Corrine Jean-Pierre would not admit that Joe Biden simply forgot that Jackie Walorski had died. That's what happened. An old man got confused and forgot. And by the way, it happens. People make mistakes. He's old. People forget he gets a lot he gets a lot of information every day on a million topics. It it is totally plausible and feasible that this could happen. Embarrassing. But you can easily see how it would happen and you can also easily see how the White House press secretary should have simply said the president deeply regrets uh, this mistake today. You know, he his heart goes out to the Walorski family. He's going to see them in a couple of days. I mean, how easy would it have been? But, Jared, play for us what Corrine Jean-Pierre actually did at the briefing podium today. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. What, so, what so the president was, uh, as you all know, you guys were watching uh, today's event, a very important event on uh, food insecurity. The president was naming uh, the congressional champions on this issue and was acknowledging her incredible work. He had uh, he had already uh, planned to welcome <laughs> the congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. He uh, looks very much looks forward to discussing her remarkable legacy of public service with them when he sees her family this coming Friday. He said, Jack, so, are you here? Where's Jackie? She <laughs> must not be here. No, I totally understand. I just I just explained she was on top of mind. Uh, um, Crazy. You know, he knew this was an, what we were able to witness today and what the president was able to lift up uh, in this uh, at this conference at this event uh, was how her, Listen, uh, her I can't, focus. I can't do anything. He knew exactly where she was. She was top of mind. It goes on. It goes on and on, though, because the reporters. Go ahead, Joe. But but listening back to it again, I just realized how much more damning it is. What yeah. she's saying is the president knows that the late congresswoman's grieving family is going to be at the White House in her honor this week. And he knows that. And he still doesn't realize that she has passed away, which is even worse than just it happening back in August and then forgetting ab about it. What this what this boils down to, though, is, Scott, is that, yes, everyone can make mistakes, but this is a mistake and this is a, a vulnerability that the White House apparently believes it cannot yield an inch, to borrow a word from Joe Biden, and inflation. They cannot yield an inch on this. Yeah, I, uh, Sean, you know, you and I have obviously been in the PR business together. Kevin, Jared, we're all, you know, communications professionals. Just take the politics out of it for a second. You know, this is a vulnerability for her client, Joe Biden, is this this perception that he's old senile forgetful confused whatever now because of what she's done 
because of what she's done, it has drawn more attention to it. It is going to cause this bit to be played over and over again. It is going to cause more people to talk about it, and it's going to prolong this pain. A simple rip the Band-Aid off, yes, he deeply regrets it, it was a mistake, he's sorry, and it would have been over. But, the, but you know, I guess we're not going to play it, but the, the, the briefing room went into chaos right. today because the, even the reporters who normally cover up for Biden and Corrine Jean-Pierre, they, norm, they, were, they weren't even willing to buy this load of bull today. She lied. She She stood there and sacrificed whatever is left of her credibility, which cannot be much at this point, to cover up for an obvious thing that Joe Biden did. Now, I predict this. Biden will apologize because, uh, you know, he values, I think, this idea that he's like an empathetic figure. I bet he ends up apologizing, which is going to make her look even worse because that will be an admission that she lied. So, you know, if I had a piece of advice for anyone who's thinking of going into a career where you're going to be speaking on behalf of someone else or about things or about other people, here it is. Do not lie for other people and do not die on every hill. Because if you die on every hill, you're dead. And <laughs> and and uh, and and your credibility is dead. And that's what Corrine did. And and if she had if she were good at her job, which she is not. She would have told the president of the United States, I'm going to go to the podium. I'm going to apologize on your behalf, and this will be over. And that's it. But the fact that she couldn't do that and no one else in the White House thought to think of that is pretty telling about – I mean, it makes me wonder, what else, what else are they lying about? Exactly. What are they willing to lie about on a daily basis when they're willing to lie about a video that we can all watch right. on a loop? Yeah, her answer today was not sufficient. In any way, and that's why she continued to get questions about it, including from one journalist who said, well, do you think you might be willing to share the prepared remarks from the president's speech so we can all see that? And she said, well, I'm not sure why you're asking about the why you would want to see that. I mean, we we usually post those to the website. So I I guess we will probably do that with this speech, too. And so she, she made she made it much worse rather than just saying automatically from the very beginning he made a mistake but they, yeah. they can't admit that they make mistakes they so are now capable now some enterprising journalists should go through everything she said from that podium what else are they lying about this is what we could see and immediately identify that she lied about well but i'm sure it's not the only she's time. gonna be back she's gonna be back in front of the podium as i understand it on friday Yep, they already canceled tomorrow's press briefing. Wonder why they didn't want her in front of cameras and so tomorrow. It's not like she's not going to have to, you know, it'll be interesting to see if sometime between today and Friday, if they are able to somehow miraculously find an honest answer to this question. What's tech, tech, Tactics aside, by the way, you know if this had happened during the Trump years. <laughs> oh. Scott, we did we two weeks be... on him walking down a ramp. <laughs> I'm telling you, we would be in full-blown 25th Amendment. Yeah. Sources say cabinet members are discussing whether to invoke the 25th Amendment. They're already doing well, the same they thing did. to Dianne they, Feinstein. I mean, like, I don't yeah. understand. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. They did. The press picked apart everything that was said from that podium yeah. and looked for what could have been construed as a lie and then completely impeach the credibility of the person who said it. This is like their alternative facts sort of moment. This is their alternate reality where they live in. That's right. Where the president of the United States makes a mistake that everyone knows about, 
and they cannot they cannot deliver an answer about it. Let, let me tell let me let me read you let me read you all something. <laughs> I met this dude up at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> And he, and he is like, and, and I like him and, and, you know, I, I think he's a good guy. I, I do. I, I, you know, so I, I tweeted when I saw this today, why lie? Why stand there and deliver such BS when everyone knows what happened? He got confused. He forgot. It's obvious. Why not just have a statement from the president apologizing instead of destroying whatever credibility press secretary has left. Lord have mercy. He replies, this is how broken some people are over Trump. Remember the time Trump thought there were thousands more people at his inaugural than there was? And then his press secretary lied? Man, that was crazy, and I don't recall an apology weird. You know what my answer to that is? If you want to hold Joe Biden and his people to the same standard as the president that Joe Biden said repeatedly was, quote, the worst president in the history of the United States— that is not the defense of Joe Biden that you think it is. Right. It is absolutely not. But that's how broken some of these folks are. Should we not hold the president to a higher standard? Joe Biden said we should. It was the premise of his entire presidential campaign. It's okay. He forgot. He gets confused. We've watched this man walk around on stage and try to shake hands with the air. He's an old man. It's okay. People will forgive honest mistakes. Everyone knows he's old and he's confused. People, it, it's okay. But man, alive, the staring into the camera and lying, it's infected everything. Look at this Inflation Reduction Act. They stood there with a straight face and lied about that. The vice president, I don't know what you're talking about. The border's secure. They lied about that. They, their entire ethos right now is built on staring into a camera and thinking that you, the American people, are dumber than a box of hammers. That is the entire premise of this administration. We can lie to these people, and they just won't care, notice, or otherwise be able to figure it out. That's it. That's it. That's what it's all based on. Total garbage. This Gaslighting Limit brought to you by Scott Jennings and Flyover Country with uh, I mean. the whole crew. Uh, gentlemen, before we wrap it up, I do want a, a little little scene red heard. I do want to pay tribute to, and I don't know what your opinion of what, uh, was of him, uh, Scott, when you were in the George W. Bush White House, but uh, longtime CBS News correspondent and anchor Bill Plant passed away at the uh, age of 84. He actually joined CBS News in 1964, so shortly before I was born, but I grew up watching Bill Plant. Always seemed very stable, solid, and also seemed to be, uh, you know, equally hard on uh, and and tough questioner of of all the presidents that he that he covered there. So just a, a quick shout out and in, in, in memory of the CBS News Bill Plant. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean he, uh, you know, I, I think he he had a lot of longevity. I will say he was very antagonistic to George W. Bush. He shouted at Bush uh, on occasion. He yelled at Karl Rove at a press conference once. I mean. It's like I, I, I think he had a, he had a, a remarkable career. I'm glad you brought him up, but uh, he did get a little cranky in his later years. <laughs> anything, guys? Sean, anything for us? 
I'll just say that uh, here in flyover country, uh, especially in Louisville, Kentucky, the uh, restaurant and bar scene continues to uh, dwindle uh, here in Louisville. Uh, we saw today, or that in a, in a Facebook post, that the Whirling Tiger, which is uh, was a was a nice little place uh, in Butchertown in Louisville, uh, where local artists could perform music and uh, you could grab a drink with friends. It was a nice, quiet place most most evenings. Uh, is it closed abruptly uh, t- uh, this morning, and it follows like uh, four or five other places. And I, I was a real fan of this place. Uh, he was se- a big fan of this place. <laughs> several uh, several of my uh, my friends uh, here in the community, we would go uh, hang out there uh, in the uh, Louisville Young Professional Community, and so uh, sad to see it go. Hopefully, it can come back. What you got for us, Jared? Uh, I'm sort of like a couple weeks late on my scene, Red Herd. Uh, we didn't talk about this, but of course, uh, the famous Adnan Syed from the Serial podcast was let out a couple weeks ago, or at least pending a, a new trial or new charges. I had listened to Serial back when it came out in 2014. I remember sort of it, it being this huge phenomenon and listening through it and having thoughts of his guilt or innocence or who maybe did it back then. And, you know, so many years later, uh, now decided to go back and re-listen and had a very different uh, effect on me this time. Uh, so I just finished this up just a day ago and really had some different thoughts on Sarah Koenig and Adnan and some of the other characters in the story and the presentation of it. And then watched the HBO documentaries uh, over the last couple of days too and had some very different thoughts again from when I was a young, impressionable uh, college student, and now have uh, some very different thoughts on on his guilt or innocence. But Mary. I will leave that up to the listener and viewer. Uh, you can maybe read between the lines here. But uh, it, it really incredible story. Uh, you know, so much gets talked about the the criminal justice system, whether it's broken or not broken. But I would encourage people to go back and listen if you listened eight or so years ago. Maybe retry it. Kevin. So my scene, Red Herd, is just to rile everybody up. This week, music icon Lizzo was performing in Washington, D.C., and the Smithsonian Institution brought out something I didn't know existed, a crystal flute owned by James Madison. He uh, acquired it in 1813, and uh, Lizzo is a classically trained flautist, and uh, they had her play it on stage. Uh, Big fan of Lizzo's music. Uh, That was pretty cool to see. Sean, can you just give me 30 seconds on why the president of the United States in the 1800s had a crystal flute? I imagine it was a gift from some foreign dignitary. Because he had I never mean, played uh, it, correct? It had never been I'm, I'm not sure that it had played. ever been played. Yeah. Like, I think that this might have been the first time that it was played and that it was taken out of the National or the Library, Library of Congress. Congress. Library of Congress, not, Congress, the, not yeah. the Smithsonian. Yeah, they, they, and they gave it to someone to play. And I just, I just think that you know, museum artifacts. We we had belong a long, in a museum, like Indiana Jones said. We had a long oh, fight about this on. before we got on a, on air. <laughs> Listen to this. I'm just looking this up. According to the Library of Congress, the flute may have been saved by First Lady Dolly Madison during the White House fire in 1814. It came into the possession of Dolly Madison's son from her first marriage, John Payne Todd, who bequeathed it to Washington-based Doctor. Cornelius Boyle. Boyle's <laughs> descendants allowed the flute to be displayed in 1903 at the U.S. National Museum as part of the Smithsonian. Then it went to another guy, and then it was donated along with 1,700 instruments to the Library of Congress in 1941, where it has remained 
until its stage debut with Lizzo. There you go. American history is the best. What can I say? <laughs> it's interesting, to say the least. All right. Wow. Well, this has been an interesting <laughs> turn of events. Lizzo, just, take us home. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, honestly, Kevin before the show told us that when he's sitting at his desk and he's got his headphones on and he's kind of bebopping his little head back and forth, that he's most often listening to Lizzo. We had no idea that you were such a Lizzo fan. And oh, yeah. so, uh, shout out Spencer concert? Brown for getting me into Lizzo a number of years ago. Yeah. So that's amazing. Joe? Um, shout out James I, Madison. I. <laughs> I I, don't know I think what to our, say. I think I think our scene red herd might be the same. I mean, since we I'm last had this sure podcast, mine, mine is Bill Plant. But what's yours? Well, no, no, no. The most important scene red herd for you and me this past week was Albert Pujols oh, hitting his 700th home run for the St. Louis Cardinals against the Los Angeles Dodgers, and then of course the Cardinals clinching the NL Central. And you and I talked on the phone that night uh, about how meaningful this whole chase has been for us watching Albert. So I'll, I want to throw well, that one in. I will tell you that I was watching that game from Los Angeles when he hit both the uh, 699 and 700, and I stood in front of the television rather than just sitting there and watching it. I felt like I needed to be closer to it than to, <laughs> than to the action. And I, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a I'm older than all you guys, and uh, I, I got goosebumps. I, I just just as somebody I've watched for 21 years, saw him his first week in the majors. Saw him. I wasn't there for his first home run, but there for the first week. Uh, he had a home run on opening day in St. Louis uh, when as a, as a rookie. Anyway, uh, he he has been a class act the entire time. Uh, just a an incredible talent, and uh, for Latin uh, the Latin community and Dominican Republicans uh, in, in particular, uh, a, a real hero there. So anyway, kudos to Albert. I, I will just say a little known fact: he actually hit that home run with a crystal uh, <laughs> baseball bat that had been owned by Grover Cleveland. And he had gotten that from the Library of Congress. And it's amazing it didn't shatter when he hit the hit the home run. Pretty amazing. American <laughs> history, man. Gotta love it. <laughs> deserving of the that's, All right. Sean, that's Scott Jennings, Sean Southern, Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford. I'm Joe Arnold. This, I think, has been what? Where am I? <laughs> Joe, Sean, Sean. I'm not sure. Where's Sean? Jim? I want to go look. Kevin! Kevin! Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.